We are still with Stephen, chapter 7, who had been taken by force into custody and then brought before the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, the 71 elders. And they asked him whether he was speaking against Moses or defaming the temple. And uh, he gives this long answer. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And he finally gets around after proving that Abraham, a Gentile coming from Ur of the Chaldees, Joseph raised up by God but rejected by his brothers, though he was their deliverer and redeemer, as it were. Moses being rejected, who they revered as um, their leader and again their deliverer, and they rejected him. And uh, comes around to verse 51, where he finally again makes application a little tough on them. You stiff-necked. And uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And it's brought us to verse 54. And when they heard these things, the Sanhedrin, they were cut to the heart. The idea is to be sawn in two. They were cut in that respect to the heart. And it says... They gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, they didn't chew on him. They gnashed at him. That's the idea. They gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, contrast, but he, it says, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. He began talking about the God of glory. Now he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. So this amazing scene, he's given this testimony, no doubt his face shining like an angel the whole time, filled with the Holy Spirit. And as as this comes to an end, it says, he looks up steadfastly into heaven. He's looking through the ceiling of the meeting place of the Sanhedrin, which had a stone roof on it. He's looking right through that up into heaven. Remarkably, you imagine his emotion as this is taking place. And he says, and he saw the glory of God, no trouble seeing that, through the the roof of the temple. And he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God, standing there in a perfect tense. He sees Jesus having taken a stand. Jesus is mentioned 16 times at the right hand of God in the New Testament. 13 times he's seated because it said he finished his work and he sat down. In the Old Testament, temple and tabernacle, there was no seat for the priest because their job was never ended. It was never done because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
But it tells us of Jesus, when he was finished, he sat down. But so here he is standing, interesting, having taken a stand. He's ready to receive the church's first martyr. And the interesting thing is when we're in the toughest situation we could ever imagine being in, and I'm a wimp, I don't want to be in any tough situations, but when those things come to us, it's very interesting to see here that heaven is aware. On the other side of that temple roof, on the other side of the clouds and the, you know, the, the atmospheric heavens, Jesus, completely aware of what is happening in the Sanhedrin and how the word of the Lord is being spoken by Stephen, Jesus himself stands then at the right hand of the Father to receive this young man into his presence. And I think sometimes we have to, to remember, let me speak for myself, I have to remember when I'm in a tough situation that heaven is completely aware. Heaven's completely aware of what we're going through. I'm God's son. I'm paid for in the blood of his son. And the spirit he has placed within me cries, Abba, Father. And he's completely aware of what's going on in my life and in your life. And sometimes it's terrible. You know, how do you, this seems like such a waste. Stephen's going to get stoned this day and die, you know. It seems like such a waste. He preaches the most remarkable sermon in the book of Acts. He's filled with the Spirit. His face is glowing like an angel. He just put the entire Jewish leadership of the whole nation in place. He looks up and he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, we don't know... If Stephen had seen Christ before he was crucified, we don't know if Stephen may have heard him in the temple precincts. We don't know. It seems like he has taken hold of the word of God in a remarkable way. But imagine what it's like for him now at the end of what he has to say to look up and he sees Jesus himself. It says, having taken a stand on the right hand of God... And then he responds. He says, behold, and that's a present imperative. You need to think about this. Behold is to think about something, and this is an imperative here. You need to, you, you got, you need to think about this. I see, present tense, I am seeing the heavens open and the Son of Man, last time in the Bible that phrase is used of him, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself through the Gospels, and it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 there, where he is the Son of Man in glory before the Father. And he says, he says, he says, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing, having taken his stand on the right hand of God. This is the first appearance of Jesus in glory since we have seen him ascend. Very interesting picture again. And it says, at that, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped up their ears and they ran upon him with one accord. So all dignity leaves the room now. These are the, 
the dignified religious leaders of the nation, and all of a sudden, like Popeye, they go, that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more. They put their fingers in the air, and they're going, ah, they're trying to out-scream them. Now, interesting thing is, the only way Luke could have written this, because Luke wasn't at this meeting, is there's a young man, we find out, Saul of Tarsus, who's involved with this, who Luke will end up traveling with for years. And I wonder when, when Saul described this to Luke, it must have been in great detail because he writes out the whole sermon. Saul must have said, Paul must have said, look, this is the best sermon I ever had. Let me tell you, you know, it just because he steals everything from Stephen. Stephen, not Gamaliel, is his spiritual father. It becomes very obvious. And he says, then they just begin to scream, formality's gone, and they run upon him, and it says, they take him and they cast him out of the city. And they stoned him. Witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. So they take him. Those of you who have been to Jerusalem with us, there's the Sheep Gate or St. Stephen's Gate. And Josephus and some of the church fathers tell us, because it's right by the Kidron, that outside of that gate there was a wall. It was 15, over 15 foot high and that they would take the people where they were going to stone, take them out and throw them over the wall. You're, you're falling 15, 20 foot onto rock, and then they would stone them from above. Um, that's where they take him. That's where they throw him down. This, and they're, they're just enraged as they do this. And Saul, who must have been with them on the inside, comes out now, and they're all laying down their clothes. Isn't it interesting? At the feet of Saul. We know from Paul he is a Pharisee. Philippians, his father was a Pharisee. He is known for zeal among all of his peers. He ends up now moving from here, slaughtering the church and hailing men and women to prison, circumcised on the eighth day as all of the credentials. With zeal, he says, he, he operated above his brethren, so the Sanhedrin has enough respect for him. He's standing there. They're all laying down their garments at the feet of this young man whose name is Saul. So now as we move into this next session, it's remarkable because we, were, we, you know, we saw what happened with Stephen in this chapter. And then we're going to see what happens with Saul and then Philip. As we go into the next chapter, there's four people that it's built around. Saul, Philip, Simon the Sorcerer, and the Ethiopian eunuch. The chapter's built around four men. But the broader picture now takes us from Saul to the Ethiopian eunuch to the centurion. Those are the next three, you know, that we get, and it's... Those are the conversions. These three kind of get pushed in front of us. And it's interesting because it's Shem, Ham, and Japheth being gathered. You know, they were scattered, being gathered back under the grace of God. So we have just an interesting, you know, way this is woven. The tapestry of all this becomes very interesting. So this young man there named Saul, who will change the world... And they stoned Stephen, 
calling upon God as they're stoning him. Try to imagine he's calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down, and the Greek seems to indicate he placed himself to his knees because he's going to scream one more time. The stones are raining down on him when they threw him over the wall. He must have picked himself up and got onto his knees. And it says, and he kneeled down, having placed himself on his knees is the idea. And then he cries with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit of Jesus. You can imagine the Lord standing at the right hand of his father, hearing his first martyr cry, Lay not this sin to their charge. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You just you think of what a treasure this is to Jesus at the second. You think of what a treasure it is to Stephen as he looks up and he sees his Savior standing, waiting to receive him. And he cries out, don't, you know, he, he has, when you're lit up by the Holy Ghost like that and God's glory is on you, you're looking at the world in a much different set of categories than we do. It's not racial, it's not social, it's not all of the different ways, nationalities that we, the way we look at humankind, then with all the trends in our culture and society, we line everything up in so many different ways. At this moment, when you're ready to pass in the glory, you see the saved and the unsaved. You see the, the drama of redemption in all of its clarity and you realize with all of the distractions that can be around us and all of the things we can see on television, everything that can be driving us crazy about pandemic, about taxes, about China, about Russia, everything we're inundated with, all of the... God knew all that stuff. He wrote it out for us. He's not surprised by any of it. The task at hand is still you and I are his children we should be filled with this Holy Spirit, filled with glory. We have the right to come to him and ask that. It says if we pray anything according to his will, we can know we have those petitions. And it's his will for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It should be something we're seeking him for in these last days because the two great categories of humankind are still the saved and the unsaved, the lost and the believer. And it's so interesting here, as these stones are raining down on him, he says, Lord, don't lay this. They're unsaved. They're in dark. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know not what they do. And, you know, he says, Lord, lay not their sin to their charge. And it says, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. <laughs> Wake me up when this is all over. No. He fell asleep, which is always a New Testament doctrine, the description of the death of a believer. Because believers don't die, they fall asleep, because they're getting up again. So he just, he just fell asleep. It's, it's interesting, the, the description here, koinmeo, uh, is from koinomateron. It means sleeping place. That's where we get the word cemetery from. A cemetery is from the Old English. It means sleeping place. And in the early cemeteries of the Christian era, everybody was buried with their head facing east because they knew the scripture said Jesus, you know, is coming from the east to the west. 
And they all wanted to get up looking at him when he came for them. So, you know, that cemetery is a sleeping place. And it says, after this had happened, he fell asleep. We're going to see him soon. He's waking up, getting up, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And now, Saul. Now, the, the people who broke up the New Testament, and I appreciate them, into chapters, really could have waited for chapter 8 to be down to verse 5, because Saul is tied into what we've just read. And it says, And Saul was consenting. The idea is he's casting his vote, which tells us he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is interesting. You had to be 30 years old to, to officially be a member of the Sanhedrin and had to be married. Though we don't know what happened to his wife. You know, he's going to get converted on the road to Damascus. He's going to go from there into Arabia for a number of years. You tell your wife, hey, honey, I'm going out to get a loaf of bread, and you're gone for three years. And you come back and you're a Christian, it may not fare well. So, you know, this poor gal in one sense, I hope she got saved. Peter was with his wife to the end of his life. Uh, she traveled with him. And so did some of the, the wives of the other apostles. Uh, but here is Saul of Tarsus voting, consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad through all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. What an interesting note he puts there. Now, Jesus had said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Now that's beginning to happen. The salt shaker is beginning to shake out the salt here. And it's so interesting because he said that to the apostles. And, uh, and now it says they start to see them get scattered. Diaspora, James chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, write their letters to those who are scattered. James says the 12 tribes that are scattered. Diaspora, to scatter, spora, seed. And the way the Lord looks at the church in these pictures, the, the word the Holy Spirit gives to Luke as he's writing, this was the seed scattered. It began to be scattered throughout the Roman Empire. It was scattered first throughout Judea, outside of Jerusalem. Then it was scattered to Samaria. And that's what Jesus said. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And we're going to watch it through the book of Acts. The seed of God's word, the seed of God's people be scattered throughout the known world. So it says they were all scattered because of persecution, interesting, through all the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then it says, except the apostles. So, it, you know, we don't know exactly what's happening here. Um, Stephen, Saul of Tarsus, Philip, they, the, 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 the ones they appointed, the seven they appointed, in chapter 6, all have Greek names. There was a large Hellenist community of Greek Jews in Jerusalem. And it seems many of them are getting saved. So maybe the persecution, because it came against Stephen, began to be, you know, as it began, it was the most intense against the Hellenists. 
because the apostles that were Jewish were still keeping the dietary laws. We're going to see that with Peter as we move on. Um, even Paul, when he comes back, still makes a vow. Somehow were they tolerated a little bit more amongst the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem? We don't know. But it's just an interesting side that the disciples are scattered all over except the apostles. They stay there. And Paul's going to tell us after his conversion that he goes up to Jerusalem and he sees them. They're still there at that point in time. Doesn't mean that they were chicken. That's not what it's saying here. For some reason, the Lord has them planted and they remain. <coughs> and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and they made great lamentation over him. They must have loved him so deeply, this young man, and <coughs> how he stood before the whole Sanhedrin. And it says, but as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Havoc is a word for a wild boar or a wild animal tearing something apart. You know, the Lord calls him an animal. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, and he calls him an ox. You know, here in the picture, Saul of Tarsus, he's the anti becomes the Antichrist of the book of Acts. He is ripping the church apart. And no doubt Stephen's last words constantly ringing in his ears, Lord Jesus, don't hold this against them. He cannot get Stephen's face lit up like an angel and the things that he said, which he knows he's got no reservoir to produce, out of his heart and out of his mind. So it's, it says that Saul made havoc of the church, entering into, notice this, every house, Sounds like Canada. Entering into every house and hailing men and women committed, uh, committed them into prison. It tells us this in chapter 11. It says, Now they that were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose because of Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word, that's what they were doing, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus, Hellenist, and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus, no doubt in Greek. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. So we have that because of this great persecution that begins. Then we're told in chapter 22, it says, Paul's giving his testimony. He says, And I persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. And he says, And he said, the God of our fathers has chosen these that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one. And it's interesting we have that phrase again. We should ha see that just one involved in all of these things. And then he says, and when the blood of the Stephen martyr was shed, I also was standing by consenting, again, voting unto his death, 
and kept the remnant of those that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee unto the Gentiles. So he says, this is, this is who I was. This is what I did. But the God of glory spoke to me and allowed these things to happen in my life. And I was making havoc uh, of the church. It tells us this, well, Galatians, you go into there. But the idea, it, it, we're, we're going to be told, let me look at chapter 26 real fast. Yeah, I know, it's my neurosis, and uh, I have the microphones are suffering through it. I'm sorry. Uh, chapter 26 of Acts, when he gives his other testimony, um, he says this, Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice, my vote again, against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. We certainly know to Damascus. So it tells us here, this man Saul of Tarsus, he brought havoc on the church. He caused them to be put to death. He hailed men and women off the prison. He was going into home fellowships and in the synagogues. He was making them blaspheme the name of Jesus. You can imagine, when he tells us in Galatians, he said, well, I did all that not really knowing what I was doing. You know, he kind of pulls that out. But um, he commits them to prison. Therefore, verse 4, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, notice, not just running for their lives, preaching the word, preaching the word, the word of God. And certainly it is from that, signs and miracles, those things take place. But in the book of Acts, it's never the word that bears testimony to signs and wonders. It's always, always signs and wonders bearing testimony to the word that was preached. Sadly, sometimes we don't see that in the church today. It says they were scattered abroad. They went everywhere preaching the word, the Lagos. Then Philip. Now, here's the next one we're introduced to. Stephen's gone. This was We, we met Philip in chapter 6. He was one of the seven that was chosen. He's called Philip the Evangelist in other places. So no doubt... These men were chosen because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were chosen because they were of good reputation. They were chosen because of their commitment to Christ. And they were put in that position of serving, waiting on tables. We get the word deacon from that. But it doesn't say specifically they were made deacon. Certainly that role in the church evolved from that attitude of serving. But this now is Philip, and he's called evangelist. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ. Now, this is the the evangel, the gospel. He preached Christ unto them, and the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake. Besides that, hearing and seeing the miracles that he did. So these are not apostles now. This is a guy who's waiting on tables. The apostles are back in Jerusalem. Now Philip's out doing signs and wonders, miracles. But they're giving heed to the fact that he was preaching. Look, 
the, the stage was set for this. We're told that part of John the Baptist's ministry took place in the Jordan River, and in one of the locations, it's kind of at the base of where Gerizim and Samaria is. We're told that Jesus, in John chapter 4, took the time to go into Samaria for a woman. Well, it tells us that Jesus met the woman there at Jacob's well, and he began to speak to her. The Lord tarries, we'll get there on Sunday morning. And as he did, she opened up. He exposed her, was gracious to her, she said, you know, where our fathers, they worship at Mount Gerizim. You worship in Jerusalem. And he said, well, the time's coming when those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and in truth, not at one mountain or the other. And she runs back into Samaria, and she says, I met a man. Certainly, He's the Messiah. He told me everything I ever did. Now, no doubt some of the men in the city were probably a little worried when they heard that. He told me everything he ever did. Then it says multitudes came out then to meet them. He preached the word to them, and it says their hearts were moved. The whole city received Christ's ministry, and many believed. So now, as Philip goes to Samaria, there's already been seed sown. There's already been a work begun. And no doubt there are many that, as the miracles are taking place, saying to their uncle or mom or their dad or the kids, see, I told you, you know, this, this is the Jesus that was here that we, we listened to, and look what's happening. So there's a groundwork that's already been laid in a remarkable way. And it says then, Philip is preaching the word to them. They're listening. New ground there. And they're hearing what he has to say. Now, look. The, the Jews, this is remarkable, because the Jews, we're going to see that, that Peter and John have to come because Jerusalem is not going to recognize Samaritan brothers and sisters without the testimony, official testimony of apostles. Because this is part of the northern tribes, this area, and the ten northern tribes were carried away under Assyria for their sin, and as they carried them away, what they realized is back in the northern tribe area of Israel, they were facing drought, they were facing floods, they were facing lions, animals, predatory animals. So they believed superstitiously that there was a God over each geographical reason, region, gods of the mountains, gods of the valleys, and they said, we've got to figure out how to worship this God from this place. So they went and got some of the priests that had, you know, def defected and gone over to Baal and so forth. They found them and they said, you need to go back to the land and teach us how to worship Jehovah. I mean, this is the amazing irony, you know. They had become idolaters and now the Assyrians who were idolaters are telling them, you know how to teach, we need to learn how to worship your God. So they send them back. So the Samaritans, and there's about 300 alive today, I believe. The Samaritans were born out of idolatrous priests that came back to the area and taught the Assyrians and those from other countries that, were, that took their place and were put in the land how to worship Jehovah. So the Samaritans uphold the first five books of Moses, even today. Now, they've changed a few things here and there. But, I mean, they're half-breeds as far as the Jews are concerned. They're kind of 
some type of Jewish lineage that goes back to Israel before they were carried away. Uh, but they've taken in all these other strength. They still sacrifice. It's still very interesting. And uh, they still see Jacob as their father, even in, in Jesus' day when he goes to Samaria. Jacob's well is there. Um, very, very interesting area today, certainly a lot of tension and violence. Um, I've been to Shiloh when we were still able to travel in that area. Very interesting. Shiloh's there, and sitting in front of you is this plateau where Hophni and Phineas and Samuel were, and you're looking at it, and there's a broken down wall, huge long wall, all around where the tabernacle had been pitched. And the amazing thing is you stand there looking at it, there's broken pottery everywhere. If you walk behind a mountain, no broken pottery. Because the Jews had a tradition that when they got whatever was sacrificed in the pot, animals, when they, the, you know, they cooked and so forth, they, they, would, they were able to eat looking at the tabernacle because it was too crowded for them all to be there. So they could eat the, the sacrifices they took part in as they looked down at the tabernacle. And when they were done, they had to throw down the, the, the clay pot and break it. So where there's no, you walk behind a hill where you can't see the tavern, there's no, there's no broken pottery there. It's just so fascinating. It's sitting, you know, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal are there. Jacob's Well is there. Shiloh's there. It's so interesting. But the Jews disdained the Samaritans. And listen, one of the things that we discover in the book of Acts is the way that prejudice is being torn down and destroyed. And believe me, this, these are prejudices that go back 700 years. These are prejudices that go back a 1,000 years. This is prejudice that is so deeply rooted, it's incredible, and Christ is going to gather Samaritans, Greeks, Gentiles, Jews. And the, the partition wall is going to be broken down. The church is going to become one. And it's this remarkable picture that's being given to us. And the Lord decides to choose this guy, Saul, who is the most zealous guy of all, who's slaughtering the church to be the one to open up the gospel to the Gentile world. He hated Gentiles. And he's going to be the one that does this. It's so interesting. You know, John, uh, the, the apostle, uses the word grace seven times. And it's just like John. You read the gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, you'll find the word grace seven times. That's not a coincidence. It's just mystical. He's mystical. just interesting. I think Peter uses the word twice. He talks about God's grace being sufficient. He talks about the manifold grace of God, literally the very colored grace of God. And Peter needed it. He needed grace to be purple some days and red other days and yellow other days, depending on whether he was hacking off in a year or putting his foot in his mouth. He said, you know, the, he's, but Paul uses the word grace over 120 times. Because the blood of the church was on his hands. He said, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. When he writes to Timothy, he says to Timothy that the Lord saved me so he could put me up on his mantelpiece 
and say, see this trophy? This one here means anybody can be saved. And if you have any doubts about your salvation this evening, this was a man who was murdering the church. Because look, we have people that come here and they're still condemned for years because they were an alcoholic before they got saved. And they destroyed their family. And it's never really healed. We have people here, drug addicts, that ruined everything before they were saved. We have people here that ruined their family's finances or got an abortion, and then they come to Christ, and they still are trying to, this is still hanging over my head. I, I, I knew better. I should have done this. Nobody, can, nobody matches up against Saul. That's why God takes him and raises him up. He's, this is the one making people blaspheme the name of Jesus. This is the one hailing men and women to prison. This is a man standing there consenting as they're put to death. This is a man who slaughtered the church and hated Jesus Christ. He becomes the apostle of grace, right? The apostle of grace. He'll tell us the grace of God hath appeared, bringing us to salvation, teaching us to be denying ungodly lust in this present world and to be looking forward to the coming of God our Savior. You know, he says grace brings us in, grace keeps us, and grace is the only thing that could make you and I look forward to the return of Jesus Christ, you know, with with our rap, you know, our rap sheet, you know. Uh, so so here's this man Saul and Philip then fleeing the insanity and Saul as Paul when he's converted is going to sit in the house of Philip who ends up at Caesarea with him and his daughters years after this. And Philip must be saying, you were really a pain, you know that? You, know, just, you can imagine the way that conversation is going to go. His daughters were saying, this is the one you were telling us about? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's the one, you know. So here we, we meet Philip, goes down to Samaria, miracles, signs, and wonders. And it says, and unclean spirits are crying out with a loud voice coming out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies that were crippled and lame, they were healed, and there was great joy in that city. And, and there should be wherever the gospel is preached, certainly with power, you know, when there's a real genuine Jesus movement. And that, that's what we need to be praying for again, not a revival at Calvary Chapel or Baptist Church. We just need another Jesus movement. And the only reason the church is here 2,000 years later is because God will allow Pentecost to come at the neediest moments in church history, and we sure need it today. Or blow the trumpet, taking us up or coming down, one or the other, you know, up or down. That should be our new bumper sticker, up or down. Uh, The only two things that make sense to me. And it says, and there was great joy in the city. Now, if you want to ruin the joy... You have a but. Here it is in verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, not Simon Peter, another Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people. They were enamored with him, is the idea, of Samaria, giving out that he himself was some great one to whom they all gave heed, those that lived in Samaria, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that for a long 
time he had bewitched them with sorcery. So, look, going to happen when the Antichrist shows up. The false prophet, signs and wonders. The whole world, it says, are going to marvel after the beast and receive his name. It says, multitudes, nations, kindreds, and tongues are going to marvel after the beast, whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We are specifically warned in the Bible that when anything miraculous or strange takes place, you have to test that. There has to be discerning of spirits. You can't just buy into it because some power was demonstrated. Moses comes down to to Egypt and he throws down his staff. The magicians in Egypt say, no big deal. They throw down their staffs. They turn in the serpents as well. Of course, Moses serpent ate their serpents, but you know, you know. It, but there, there was magical arts. There was power, and there is power in that. And Satan today, still, there are satanic families in America that have been here since the 1700s. There is power. It's the dark side. Ask Darth Vader. There's power on that side. Okay. And uh, just just because there's a demonstration of power doesn't mean because Satan will lend power to any deceiver until he takes his soul. Because even a deceiver like Simon, the price you pay for that power is your eternity. And he's doing signs and wonders. There's things going on. The whole people were wondering after him. He had bewitched them all with sorceries. But... When they, the people of Samaria, believed the preaching, Philip preaching, now down in verse 14, tells he's preaching the word. When they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So, Miracles is never enough to keep us. Look, if miracles were enough for you and I to ground us in our faith and make us mature, then the children of Israel with Moses in the wilderness would not have griped about a single thing. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the miracles. They were walking behind a pillar of cloud during the day, shading them, the pillar of fire every night. They saw manna fall from heaven for 38 years and feed them. If miracles could take hold of a human heart and make it what it needed to be, there wouldn't have to be. The Savior would not have had to come. But the problem is we need both the living word and the written word. That's what changes a man or a woman from the inside out. And these people had followed signs and wonders, but hadn't done anything for them. Judaism hadn't done anything for them, but hated them. But now Christ, a particular individual, and that's what we need to do. We need to bring people, not to Calvary Chapel, to Christ, to Jesus. He's being presented, and something's happening. They're changing. They're believing. There's a change, and even Simon the sorcerer is seeing that. And it isn't by signs and wonders. It's by the word that's being preached. The lives are being changed. And it says that then Simon himself believed also. Now, that word also is interesting. Uh, Do you want to know why? Okay. There's a controversy because it's going to tell us down after this that Simon tries to buy 
when he sees the apostle lay hands on people, they get filled with the Holy Spirit, that he tries to buy that from the apostle. That's where we get simony. That's a word that's used for someone in the church that buys their position in the church. So the controversy is, is he really a believer that gets off track there? And then Peter rebukes him and tells him he needs to repent and get it right. And then what people try to say, well, you know, Philip didn't have the discernment. He didn't realize that he was really saved because he baptizes him. If he knew that he was really but Peter knew as soon as he got there, that can be your opinion. It's wrong, but it can be your opinion. You know, I, you know, Linsky, the old Greek grammarist, who's as stubborn as anybody, he says, but when they believed, that word is the same word that is used when it says Simon himself believed. Same exact tense and voicing. In fact, it's the word that's used when it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth, there's our word in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. I don't think Philip would have ever baptized him unless he knew in his heart. And Philip, obviously, doing signs and wonders. He's preaching the word. He knows this man has had a, a genuine experience. So it says, then Simon himself believed also, which kind of supports that. And he was baptized. And he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard, they had remained at Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had received, no, this is the Logos, the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. So Jerusalem, they hear, hey, Samaritans are getting changed. And they're going, ruh-roh, are you, what do you mean? Are you kidding me? You know, because there was always this rift between the religious Jews and the Samaritans. So the church in Jerusalem says, let's send Peter and John down to make sure this is legit. And imagine what happens when John comes there and he sees these Samaritan brothers and sisters. I wonder if they say, eh, aren't you Bo and Jerry's? Are you one of the sons of thunder? No, I mean, aren't you the one that want to call down fire from heaven and incinerate us? You know, imagine what it's like for the apostle John to come and see these brothers and sisters who before he was saved, he wanted to incinerate them. Jesus said, hey, you don't know what spirit of you're, you're of. I didn't come to earth to burn people up. I came to earth to save them from being burned up. And here's the, the Apostle John now walking into Samaria, being greeted by brothers and sisters filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ, breaking down prejudices. John was prejudiced enough, he just wanted to incinerate them. Lord, we went into Samaria. We tried to rent a whole, the, the room at Motel 6. They knew we were Jews, so they wouldn't rent to us. Call down fire from heaven, incinerate them. I know it's a little harsh, but if we set the example this time, any time we want a room after this, we're going to be able to rent it. <laughs> Their logic, you just imagine. Now here's John coming and looking into the face of brothers and sisters in Christ. I have to believe he's embracing them. I have to believe there's tears in his eyes. 
there isn't anything that should keep anyone in this church and in this room from embracing a brother and sister, whatever their background is, whatever their race is, whatever you know they've come from, whatever their culture is. You may be young and cool. You can love an old bald guy <laughs> or an old hairy guy like me, right? It breaks down all of that stuff. And here's John. You know, God made sure he came with Peter. And then Peter probably said, you know, you were Bill and Jerry. You know, there's a, the, the, they, they come to Samaria and they heard that they had received. So they sent Peter and John, look, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet... He was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, interesting picture here. We'll pick up there next week. This is one of the controversies with the Holy Ghost. They're believers, or Philip would never have baptized them. When you believe, you are baptized by the Holy Ghost. He's the baptizer into the mystical body of Christ. But when you get saved, you're not saying, gee, Lord, would you baptize me into the mystical body? You're saying, I'm such a sinner, I'm a jerk, I'm going to hell, I'm tired of it. And he saves you. And in that act of faith, supernaturally, you become part of the mystical body of Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. At that point, you are baptized, not with, but by the Holy Spirit. There's another baptism. It tells us in chapter 1 that Jesus said, you're going to be baptized not by, but with the Holy Spirit. And that is not the Holy Spirit coming E-N in the believer. That never happened in the Old Testament. It says here, a P. He wasn't yet fallen upon anything. He came upon Samson. He came upon Saul at one point in his life in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came upon Old Testament characters. But here falling upon the believer who's already part of the body of Christ so they can exercise their ministries. Even John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, third century, views this different from their baptism. They had received the spirit of forgiveness, but not yet the spirit of signs, one of the church fathers says as he looks at this. My encouragement, of course, is if you got saved and You're baptized into the body of Christ. You were one with one another. But there's also the baptism with the Spirit. Has he come upon you? You know, Chuck used to say, if you ain't got it, get it. If you got it, great. If you ain't got it, get it. We want all that the Spirit has for us. Charismania has made that seem crazy sometimes with all the weird shenanigans that go on. But we believe the. I pray in the spirit when I'm by myself. I believe the gifts are for today. I have. Uh, I believe obviously. I, I believe unless I'm punishing everybody, a teaching gift, which is one of the gifts. Now there's gifts of mercy and of administrations, and of teaching, of helps. Those are the gifts that are not so visual, but they help the church run like an oiled machine. Those are the you know. Those are the ones that really help things go. Um, so here now the Holy Spirit who had indwelt them, they were baptized into Christ, now comes, falls upon them. It was very noticeable. 
to the apostles that only power was being demonstrated by Philip in this community. And now we're going to see the same thing in chapter 19 in Ephesus. Then they lay hands on them, and they received, and, and it's interesting, they received there, they received, it's an imperfect tense, but one of the translators, the Greek guys, translates it, they received and kept on receiving the Holy Ghost. It's another evidence that it isn't the one time receiving at conversion. You know, spirit-filled Christian, again, is not a title, it's a condition. Well, I'm a spirit-filled Christian. Well, then why are you living with your girlfriend? I'm a spirit-filled Christian, yeah. Well, you're filled with the wrong kind of spirits, obviously. You know, a spirit-filled Christian is not just a title, it's a condition. And every day we should be asking the Lord to fill us with his spirit in the days we're living in. Are you kidding me? And I can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit in my life because I'm such an idiot. I can get mad at things I shouldn't get mad at. I can think thoughts I shouldn't think. I can allow myself to get in the flesh when somebody hurts me. I can think, hey, just preach the gospel to that guy and shoot him. Be merciful, but put him out of my misery, you know. But to be a spirit-filled Christian, imagine what Paul endured. But, you know, we're going to see as we get to Saul's life. You read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was beaten, how many times he had gone through those things. That's before he wrote Corinthians, which is before the shipwreck in the book of Acts, we'd have never known. Luke didn't write about those things. We'd have never known except Paul says, let me take a minute and brag a little bit. I'm thinking, man, I'm handing in my resignation by this time. You look at all of the things he went through. We need the Holy Spirit to go through the things we're going through. And not every Christian is a martyr like Stephen in the sense of physical death. But every Christian in this room is called to be a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, by the mercies of God, presenting ourselves a living sacrifice, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds through the power of God's Spirit. I don't mind being a martyr. I just am thoughtful about the way that would happen. Guillotine, that's fine with me. Uh... Firing squad, as long as they're a good shot, that's fine with me. You know, It's harder to live for Christ than it is to die for Christ. But I don't want to be thrown to sharks. I don't want to... There's, I have preferences about the way I cross over. I'm not afraid of dying just of the way that I might die. Uh, so we're not all called to be martyred. We're not all called to be stoned. And a lot of these men were crucified and drug behind chariots and it's just the cruelness of it skinned alive Matthew you just we're not all called to to be martyred in that respect but we're all called to be living as martyrs to be living sacrifices and if we're filled with the holy spirit it's the only way that we can do that so i think that's you know we we journey through here this was 2000 years ago it needs to be now it needs to be today it needs to happen again amen all right, let's stand, let's pray. We'll sing a last song. <clears throat>
Father, I, I, I look to you. So do we all, Lord. We're, we're looking to you, praying that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit tonight. We, we understand that uh, the Sanhedrin would never approve of us 2,000 years later meeting in a place like this, talking about Jehovah being our Father and Jesus being the Christ. But here we are, Lord, because that's all true. So, Lord, above and beyond everything here, we ask that you might fill us, baptize us, Lord, afresh with your spirit. Let him fall upon us, Lord. And let the question never be how much of the Holy Spirit do we have, but let it be how much of us does the Holy Spirit have. Lord, let us consecrate ourselves afresh by your grace, by your strength, and Lord, in these last days, let us share your love. The world is hopeless. It's unraveling. It's insanity. And uh, Lord, we know there are principalities of powers at work behind all of these things. Let us bring light into people's lives and hope and joy and healing, Lord. It seems like there's so little time left. Let us be more effective than we have been and let that be through your power. And Lord Jesus, we do pray in your name, expecting to see you soon, Lord. And for your glory, Lord, amen.